0: You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is Episode 317. Hello, Metamorphs! Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I am Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamorph City story universe. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorphcity.com. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you, and tell you the latest on my life and my writing. So let's jump right in with this week's story. Today I'm bringing you the conclusion of my Metamore City novel, Making the Cut. If you're new to the show, go back to episode 259 to hear this story from the beginning. No recap this week, folks. We've got over 28 minutes of story for you, so let's get right to it. Here's Chapter 58. Making the Cut A Novel of Metamore City Written and Read by Chris Lester Chapter 58 Fiona never saw Miriam Bakhtivar again. By the time she returned to the terrace balcony, the sun had long since risen in a clear blue winter sky, and all that remained was the makeshift stake. Any ashes from her destruction had been driven away by the wind. Perhaps that was for the best. Fiona hated goodbyes her subsequent mission to Miriam's apartment turned up all of the elders' thralls, save one. The Seneschal, SaraLina Greyhaven, had dropped off the others a few hours before dawn, and then disappeared. She hadn't told anyone where she was going, but she'd taken clothes, food, and Miriam's sizable discretionary cash reserves along with her, so it was unlikely that she'd committed suicide or gone back to the vampires. Fiona hoped that the woman could find a new life for herself, preferably somewhere far away from Metamore City. Sasha's body was laid to rest in her hometown with full ecclesiast honors, in accordance with her family's wishes. Fiona, Brian, and Rebecca were a bit vague with the priest about their relationship to the deceased and her relatives had the decency to avoid any unnecessary clarifications. Danny and Abby went with them for the service, holding tightly to Rebecca and Fiona's hands, respectively. After the coffin had been lowered into the grave, Fiona placed a bouquet of flowers atop it—roses of deep crimson, for mourning, surrounded by myrtle blossoms, for love in absence— The priest spoke a final prayer and then released a white dove, which circled high into the air before flying off into the west. That was really nice, Sasha said to Fiona, as she and Abby made their way back to the rented ground car. I always wanted to see my own funeral. Despite herself, Fiona let out a quiet laugh. (laughs) You would. Abby gripped her hand. Now that it's done... "'Sasha said. I should really get back into our gestalt. It's getting hard to hold our thoughts separate like this.' Fiona stopped, looking back at the grave site. Tears rose unbidden to her eyes, and she wiped them away, frustrated. "'It isn't the same,' she said quietly. "'No, it isn't,' Sasha agreed gently. "'But that doesn't mean it's bad.' Just because we call ourselves Abby doesn't mean there's none of me in there. I know. Fiona turned back and ran a gentle hand down the side of Abby's face. But I miss your eyes. The ones that saw beauty in me when no one else did. Abby's brown eyes sparkled mischievously with a very Sasha-like expression. Are you getting sentimental on me, lover? After all these years? Fiona chuckled ruefully. It serves you right for opening up my heart like you did. There was a long pause. Then Fiona added, almost timidly, This is the last time, isn't it? Our last time together, just the two of us. Abby smiled. I wouldn't bet on it, Sasha said. A part of me left the day my body died, love. Probably the most important part and I've got a feeling she'll be waiting for us on the other side, where the Father makes all things new. She embraced Fiona and kissed her then, and the passion was familiar, even if the scent of her was not. When they parted, Abby smiled at her, and the aura behind those eyes was united once more. Goodbye, my love, and hello, Abby said. Fiona smiled back through her tears as a saying of her mother's came afresh to her mind. "'Merry meet and merry part,' she said. "'And merry meet again.'" Where Sasha's funeral had been extravagant, with nearly the whole town and many from Metamore City coming to pay their respects, the service for Darla was small and private, attended by five mourners and the Mariast priestess who conducted the ceremony. The child's ashes were laid to rest in a hive-owned cemetery in the upper levels of the city, surrounded by trees and well-tended gardens. The place would be breathtaking in the spring, but for now everything was still and quiet, which suited the mood of the service. Sasha's funeral had carried with it the air of a hero's sacrifice, a life given honorably in the defense of the helpless. Darla's grave spoke of dead hopes and lost dreams. Abby wept silent tears as she ran her fingertips over the letters on the headstone, then buried her face in her hands. Fiona knelt beside her, her hand on the younger woman's shoulder, silently offering her strength. Later, as they rode back toward home, Abby surprised them all by speaking up. They don't all rest in peace, you know. Danny turned and quirked an eyebrow at her. What do you mean, Abs? Abby nodded back in the direction they'd come. A lot of the headstones say rest in peace, but they don't. Not all of them. Some of them. A lot of them linger. Rebecca leaned forward, her eyes wide. Ghosts? she asked. But I thought there was no such thing. The lightbringer say it can't happen. Abby shook her head emphatically. They're lying. Or just wrong. I don't know what it is, but being inside my... I mean, Sasha's head when she died. It did something to me. I can see things now that I couldn't before. The people who are stuck in between. Fiona's brows drew together. How many... Abby shrugged. I'm not sure. A lot of them, anyway. They need help. And can you? Danny asked. Help them, I mean. Abby looked out the window, her jaw setting in determination. I don't know yet. But I'm going to try. December 21st, 1995. Christos Reckoning. Metamore City Police Department, Precinct 9, Headquarters. A knock sounded at the door to Jared's office. Come in, he said without enthusiasm. The door pushed open, and Corporal Catherine Catane elbowed her way inside, balancing two trays of beverages between her hands and chin. Coffee's here, she announced, sounding disgustingly cheerful for this early in the morning. The narcotics detective wasn't quite a rookie anymore, but she still had that eager-to-please, puppy-dog enthusiasm that Jared found so exhausting to be around. He held one of the trays for Katane while she carefully extracted his beverage from the other, setting it on the desk in front of him. There you go. Donuts are on Marcy's desk if you want any. Thank you, Corporal, Jared said politely. I may wander out in a few minutes. All right, but you better hurry if you want any of the Yule Logs. They only had six of them today. Duly noted. Jared turned away and looked out the window, watching the falling snow outside. He heard the door swing open, then an unexpectedly long pause before it shut again. You all right, sir? Jared glanced back over his shoulder. Katane was still in the room, and her eyes showed honest concern. He bit back his first reply. She doesn't know. How could she? No, Corporal, he said at last. No, I'm really not all right. Her lip twitched upward in sympathy. I feel ya. The long night can get to you sometimes, especially in our job. Sometimes it feels like we spend our whole lives in darkness. Jared nodded silent agreement though his personal, long night had nothing to do with the winter solstice. Six months. Six months since she left me. Damn it, where did I go wrong? A gentle hand gripped his shoulder. Hey, Katane said softly. Just remember, this is the turning point. I know it's dark now, but every day after this one, the light shines just a little bit brighter, a little bit longer. It may not look it, but summer's on the way. She gave him a wry smile. You can take that as a metaphor, if it helps. Involuntarily, Jared felt himself smile a little in return. Thanks, Corporal. Maybe it will. She gave him a quick, informal salute, touching the tips of her fingers to one side of her forehead, then left to continue her delivery service. Jared looked back out the window and imagined that he could see the face of Danny in the swirling snow beyond. Every day the light shines just a little bit brighter. Danny hadn't left him much reason to believe that, but there was something. A single, solitary glimmer of light in the midst of his personal darkness. While Danny had left the ring, she had kept the locket. Some day, my love, he whispered, gazing out at the darkness of early morning. The sun would rise soon, painting the city in brilliant white. Some way, somehow come back to me. Malcolm Ardvalos read through the report with a sense of quiet disappointment. Even after two weeks of diligent searching by the best seers in his organization, there was still no sign of Miriam Bakhtivar. "'Well, there's nothing for it,' he said. "'It appears that the telepaths destroyed her after all, sentimentality notwithstanding.' "'Never thought they'd go through with it,' Braddock grumbled, stalking around the perimeter of the white room. "'Dark Mother, she was their own blood!' Bunch of fucking bigots is what they are. I would not rush to disagree with you, Malcolm said dryly. Still, it's not as if it was a total loss. She was a rarity in the collective, an elder who was willing to get her hands dirty. He reached over to the chessboard sitting on the coffee table and picked up one of the pieces. At the very least, we have removed their queen from the board. That's worth a little sacrifice. Braddock made a frustrated sound in the back of his throat, then spun and grabbed the back of the sofa, leaning forward to gaze almost pleadingly at Malcolm. Let me go after them. Summers and the rest of that bunch of misfits. Let me show them what happens when they cross us. You mean besides the embarrassing flinching and cowering? Malcolm asked, chuckling. Braddock stared at him blankly. Malcolm sighed. Never mind. No, Braddock, you may not turn this into a blood feud with the telepaths. We have tweaked their uh, collective noses enough for one year. Any more, and you risk turning this into open war. And that is bad for business, as I have repeatedly sought to drill into that ever excitable head of yours. He smirked. Besides which, I have a suspicion that the summer cell may do more to unravel the hive's solidarity than anything we could hope to accomplish. Braddock frowned deeply at that, but he bowed his head, acquiescing. And what about Miriam seneschal? Do you want us to hunt her down? Malcolm picked up a pawn and eyed it thoughtfully. After a long moment's consideration, he sighed. No, I think not. Miss Greyhaven proved herself more capable than I would have expected, given the condition in which I handed her over to Miriam. But ultimately, she's harmless. Why not kill her anyway? Braddock asked. You said it yourself. She knows too much. Malcolm sniffed. Without her mistress to inspire her, she'll be lucky to remember to put on shoes, much less pose any threat to us. Besides, our Dark Mother smiles on those who survive in the face of overwhelming odds. If she can overcome what we did to her, and regain even the semblance of a normal life, she deserves our respect. Braddock showed a little smile, the one that said he thought Malcolm was getting soft in the head in his advanced years. Whatever you say, boss. What's next? Next is laying the groundwork for future endeavors. "'Malcolm said, setting down the pawn. "'A good number of our long-term goals require a certain compliance from the local constabulary, "'which has not heretofore been present. "'It is time to begin finding likely tools within the realm of law enforcement.' "'Braddock grinned. "'Double agents, eh? "'Sneaky. "'Who did you have in mind?' Malcolm picked up a stack of personnel files lying on the desk, the top new graduates from the Empire University School of Medicine. He opened the top file and passed it to Braddock. A photo of a striking, raven-haired young woman peered out above the name. Morgan Elizabeth Drowling. "'Tell me, Braddock,' Malcolm said. "'How much do you know about forensic medicine?' December twenty fourth, nineteen ninety five, Christos Reckoning Westfall Academy Danny felt an odd sensation of deja vu as she stood outside to claim an auditorium with Brian, Fiona, Rebecca, and Abby. Are they taking longer than usual in there? Danny asked. Or is it just me? Fiona checked her watch. One hour, three minutes and counting. Abby grinned. This time, it's not just you. The grin looked a bit forced, though, and Danny suspected that the younger teep was just as nervous as she was. After all, the two of them had the most to lose if this idea didn't fly. Brian came over and put a hand on both women's shoulders. This will work, he said encouragingly. We'll go it alone if we have to, but I don't think it'll come to that. Just hang together and keep showing them a united front. The door to the auditorium opened. A grim faced elder waited on the other side, and without a word they were escorted back into the presence of the assembled hive. The faces were all notably blank, as usual, but Danny thought she detected an air of uncertainty in the room, something that she had rarely seen when the hive was together especially not after their deliberations were concluded. The Hive spoke, projecting its unified voice into their minds. "'We have reached a decision on the case of Danielle Phoenix-Sharabi,' it said. Danny swallowed, then said, "'Yes?' "'Upon reviewing the evidence and the testimony of those involved,' It is our judgment that Danielle is not culpable for the deaths of Del Matthews and Trace Umbara. Danny felt a sudden weight lift off of her as her breath rushed out in a sigh of relief. While Daniel Shrabi was guilty of poor judgment and attempting to withhold funds from the collective, he had no way to know that he was working for the Vampire Syndicate. Once he learned the truth, he attempted to make amends by giving the ill-gotten funds to his friend's widow. This shows an honest spirit and a deep loyalty to the values of the collective. Danny hit a smile. Naturally, the Hive glossed over the fact that they had opposed helping Josephine Matthews at the time. At least they had finally realized that they were being petty and vindictive about the whole thing. There is also the added complication of Danielle Sharabi's existence as a personality distinct from Daniel, the hive said. As a new person, a majority of us believe that she should not be held culpable for Daniel's actions prior to her creation. To punish Danielle along with Daniel would be unjust, and would do no good to the long-term health of this hive. Translation, Danny thought privately, they don't want to throw away a new potential mother. Or a potential role model, either. If Daniel and I managed to start a trend, it could get rid of this whole surplus male problem they've been dealing with for decades. That was, indeed, a factor in our decision, the Hive said blandly. Danny blushed and reined in her thoughts a bit tighter. Apparently, they hadn't been that private. In summation, then... We have decided that Danielle Sharabi is to be welcomed into the Hive as a breeding member, with all accompanying rights and privileges. Danny bowed. Thank you, my brothers and sisters. I will do my best to serve the Hive faithfully. Which brings us to your second request, the Hive said. Brian Summers? You and your surviving cellmates have asked for Danielle Sharabi and Abby Preston to be admitted into your breeding cell. Are you fully committed to this request? The presence of the Daniel persona will affect the dynamics of your cell's gestalt, most likely in ways none of us can anticipate. And Abby Preston is no longer fertile. Brian raised his chin a bit higher. We're aware of both of those factors— but we consider them to be assets, not liabilities. Daniel's love for Rebecca has been a source of strength for them both, and an inspiration to the rest of us. Abby is prepared to give her time and effort to care for all of our family's children, even if she isn't their birth mother. Besides, Danny said, it's only her womb that's infertile. Her eggs could still be harvested and carried to term by a surrogate. And three guesses as to who the first candidate will be. You present reasonable arguments, the Hive said. We can sense your dedication to this path. But many of us are uneasy at such a radical departure from the established methods of the Hive, methods that have played a great role in our survival. If your exuberant individuality should spread within the Hive, and your methods then prove to be unsuccessful— It could throw our entire social model into chaos. Danny felt her heart lurch. The Hive, as a rule, was not given to hyperbole. If they said it could be that bad, they really believed it. Uh Uh-oh. The Elder, who had led them inside, held up a hand. However, the Hive went on, we do not wish to discard out of hand a potentially useful innovation. Successful evolution, of a species or a society, requires that allowance be made for mutations, variations from the norm. We do not wish to see our society survive the mundanes and the vampires, and then perish due to stagnation. Therefore, we have a counter-offer. Danny and her friends exchanged a look. And that is? Brian asked, carefully. Partial autonomy for the summer cell, the hives said. In essence, you would become a testbed for these interesting but potentially risky variations in the breeding cell structure. You would still receive the full protection of the hives' defenses, and full access to collective health care and other benefits. Your children would still be allowed to join the Westfall creche. In exchange, however you would be restricted from entering full gestalt with the hive in assembly, and you would be required to make regular reports to us on your experiment. If, at any time, the model should be deemed a failure, your autonomy would be revoked, and the cell reconstituted under more traditional lines. Please note that you would also be responsible for keeping your cell fiscally solvent. A failure to produce a net gain in revenue will be seen as a failure of the model. Danny's eyes widened. She looked to Rebecca, then Brian, then back at the hive. So, in other words, you're going to give us enough rope to hang ourselves with? A ripple of amusement ran through the group mind. Perhaps. Or perhaps you will stumble upon something that benefits us all. Either way, Danielle Sharabi, it serves the good of our community to keep you somewhat close— since you are all bent on pursuing this course regardless of our recommendations. Fiona smirked. But only somewhat close. Just so, the Hive agreed. Do you accept our offer? Brian called the others into a circle. Any thoughts on the fiscal side fee? Fiona closed her eyes for a moment. Potentially difficult, but achievable. Much will depend on what Abby is able to contribute. She has Sasha's memories, but no formal training. I've got some ideas about that, Abby said. I'll need to talk to you about the details, but I'm thinking freelance work. Dicey, but it pays well when you can get it, Brian mused. All right, who's willing to give this a shot? He put his hand into the middle of the circle. One by one, the others followed suit until they all had their hands piled atop one another. Danny grinned. Go warriors, she said. The hive adjourned, and the five members of the somersault walked out into the bright, chill light of a December afternoon. Abby turned her face skyward, letting the sunlight fall across her face. It's funny, she said. Part of me thinks it's strange that I finally have a family again, after being an outsider for so long, and part of me says that this is normal, the way things are supposed to be. I know the feeling. Danny came up alongside her and took her hand. Daniel and I spent so long trying to find a place where we belonged, and then we found it in a place we weren't really looking for it. She grinned. It's like busting your ass to make the cut for the team, and then finding out that you've been scouted for a completely different sport. Rebecca hooked her arm through Danny's on her other side. Are we ever going to get you off the sports analogies? Fiona slid in beside Abby, putting a hand on her shoulder. She gave Rebecca a wry look. She's half male. I wouldn't get my hopes up. Rebecca rolled her eyes and gave an exaggerated sigh. Oh, well, I guess none of us are what you'd call perfect. That's right, Brian said, as he took Rebecca and Fiona's hands to complete the circle. And us imperfect people have got to stick together. Epilogue She floated in a sea of darkness, infinite and endless. She felt nothing, saw nothing. Heard nothing. Her body had the perfect stillness of the grave. But while her ears could no longer hear, her mind remained closely attuned to the other minds nearby. There were two of them, one well guarded and full of the wisdom of years, the other shining brightly with the passionate devotion of youth. She knew them both and loved them, one from a time long years past the other from shared hardships in her recent, personal hell. She listened with her thoughts as they argued back and forth. I don't like leaving her like this. You would prefer that we released her, sent her back to the Master after she failed him? No, of course not. It's just... Can't you do something for her? The only way to free her is to kill the sire. So why don't you? "'A sigh. "'My killing days are over, child. "'Braddock's days are numbered, make no mistake, "'but I won't have a hand in ending them.' "'There was a pause. "'I can keep her hidden away in stasis until he's gone. "'And how long will that be? "'A few years at most. "'Braddock is too careless to survive much longer than that. "'The Lightbringers are just waiting for him to give them an excuse.' Be patient, child. You're young yet, and you have a lot of years ahead of you. Reluctantly, the younger mind acquiesced. I suppose you are right. The aura drew nearer then, and through the young one's own eyes, she saw her bend low, planting a tender kiss on a cold, gray brow. Good night, mistress. Rest now, and when you wake again, you will be free they withdrew then, the young mind and the old one leaving together. She felt their thoughts grow distant, then cut off abruptly, as though a door had been drawn shut. Then, nothing. The End And that concludes our story. I hope you enjoyed hearing this new, revised edition of Making the Cut. I first began writing this story in early 2007, months before I even began podcasting. Now, 15 years later, it's been a lot of fun to go back and revisit these characters one more time. If you'd like to hear one more little adventure with Daniel and Danny Shirabi, check out my Metamore City Live audio drama, Double Trouble, It was performed live at Balticon 45 by a full voice cast, including the original voice actors for Danny, Evan, Ava, and Rebecca. It was an absolute blast. You can find the link in the show notes. Neil Gaiman said Writing may or may not be your salvation. It might or might not be your destiny. But that does not matter. What matters right now are the words one after another. Find the next word. Write it down. So, let's see what words I found this week. It's time for the Weekly Writing Report. This update covers the week of January 8th through January 14th. I wrote 2,508 words this week, over the course of 3.5 hours, for an average writing speed of 717 words per hour. I wrote on six out of seven days this week. This week I did a little more work on Out of the Shadows, but duties at the day job and at home kept me from adding more than a few hundred words. I tend to do my best writing when I can take a long lunch break in the mid-afternoon, when the break rooms at the lab are quiet and mostly empty. This week I had to take my breaks right around noon, when the crowds and conversations tend to distract me from good storycraft. I compromised by returning to a project that I'd been meaning to work on for more than a year, writing blog posts for the L.C. Williams website. Since I'm trying to establish Dr. Williams as a fictional character with a distinctive voice of her own, writing her blog in character is a way for me to practice that. It also gives me the opportunity to introduce readers to more of the world building for the House of Bellevue. This week I wrote a short essay on the military conflict in Havane, where Natasha served prior to the events of the books. This is a part of Metamorph's history that I had never fleshed out in detail before, so it was a good exercise both for world building and for establishing Dr. Williams' historian voice. You can read it at www.authorlcwilliams.com. I also spent some time this week on publishing and marketing, getting the House of Bellevue ebooks and print books ready for release, setting up pre-orders, starting the back-end work for the audiobooks, and reaching out to podcasters and bloggers for potential interviews. The biggest challenge for selling these books is going to be making sure that the target audience finds out about them. If you're listening to this, and you know anyone who can help me get out the word to lovers of queer romance and romantic fantasy, please let me know. Over on the Patreon feed, we have two new patrons this week. Please welcome Ryan and Amzar. If you like this show and want to help me keep making it, becoming a patron is the very best way to support me. Your monthly or annual pledges cover the routine operating costs of Liminal Corvid Press, such as web hosting, podcast distribution, and software for writing, accounting, and audio production. They also help me pay for things like cover design and exclusive new Metamore City artwork. Make a pledge at the $3 level or higher, and you'll get to read the first drafts of my stories as I'm writing them, as well as sneak peeks, cover reveals, character bios, and other cool stuff. To get started, go to patreon.com slash chris lester, take a look at the donation tiers, and choose the one that's right for you. If you're listening overseas, there's a good chance you can make your donation in your home currency, so you won't even have to worry about shifting exchange rates or conversion fees. And if you prepay for a year's pledge in advance, you'll get one month for free. Again, that's patreon.com slash chris lester. Thank you so much for your support. I couldn't do this without you. This is the 41st episode of Season 7 of The Raven and the Writing Desk. These 41 episodes have been released without a break since May 29th, 2021. Now that making the cut is finished, though, it's time for me to take a rest and get ready for the next big project. So I'm taking the month of March off, and then I'll be back on Sunday, April 3rd, with the first episode of Honor Bound. See you then! If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorcityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author chris lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And our Discord server is Metamore City. I'm there pretty often, so come say hi. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or podchaser.com. It really helps people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2022 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvette Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.